Stop leaving your empty water cup on the side. Put it in the dishwasher. You know your mum likes the kitchen to be clean and tidy. Wise up. Don't you remember the last time you phoned him? He only made matters worse. Wise up. Is it really likely that somebody out there has found a long-lost ancestor with millions in the bank, and all you need to do is reply to this stranger's email with £10,000, and it's all yours? Wise up. See, there are many times in life when we really could do with wising up aren't there? Taking stock of the situation that we actually find ourselves in and acting wisely. Wisely, not foolishly. Acting in a sensible way instead of overstretching ourselves or doing the wrong thing. Well, this evening, following on from last Sunday morning when we were in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I think the preacher wants to say to us, wise up. Last week, he pointed us time and time again, didn't he, to the limits that we have here on earth as human beings, and that we should live in light of those limits. And he's going to do that again for us this evening, as he tells us to wise up to those limits once again. But again, just like last week, even as we face the limits of wisdom, of our knowledge and understanding here on earth, we are actually, in a very strange way, growing in wisdom. We're wising up to the realities of life. We're gaining wisdom about the things that we can't understand. See there how the preacher opens in verse 1 of chapter 8. If you've got a Bible with me, to turn back there to the passage that Andrew just read for us. And see how positively the preacher opens here regarding wisdom. He says in verse 1, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. The preacher here is wanting to show us the value of wisdom. And that's a pretty big thing, isn't it? Considering he was reminding us of the limits of wisdom last week. But here, he doesn't just then completely dismiss wisdom. Instead, he encourages it. I think the the answer to the preacher's first two questions there in verse 1 is there really aren't many who truly are wise. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue it. Yes, someone like, say, for example, Daniel, they stand out in the Old Testament, don't they, as being wise. But we should, in whatever way we can, seek to be like them, even as they stand out. And why should we pursue wisdom? Because wisdom has genuine value. As the preacher writes there in verse 1, it makes the face shine. It leaves behind the hardness of face that we look at, we see so often in the world around us. Perhaps here the preacher is genuinely referring to Daniel. He could be, couldn't he? Because we know that wisdom, in wisdom, Daniel chose to eat and drink differently, and his appearance changed. It stood out, didn't it, compared to others around him? But whether he's referring directly to Daniel or not, the same point stands. The preacher wants to say to us this evening, wise up, don't be foolish, be wise. Because there is genuine value 
in wisdom. And then it's as if the preacher then goes on to elaborate on that statement, a call, this call to be wise, to wise up, by giving us what that practically might look like in one specific situation. And that is how we should respond to and submit to authority. Do you see, that's where he goes there in verse 2, doesn't he? He offers wisdom with regards to obeying the king. The first command there, to keep the king's command, right, in verse 2, because of God's oath to him. And that, in some way, picks up exactly what we see right across the Bible, this call for us as Christians to submit to the authority that God puts above us. We read, if you were with us, similarly, didn't we, in 1 Peter when we were working through that last year? We should be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And here the command is pretty similar, isn't it? It isn't clear whether the oath that the preacher is referring to is one that God has made to the king as someone he's installed, for example, if it was an Israelite king, or if it's one that we as subjects have made before God to obey the king. But either way, the idea is the same. God has put someone in authority over us. In this case, it's a king, and we should obey. Now, we don't have lots of time this evening to get into the specifics of submission to authority. If we did, we could go to Romans chapter 13 as well. And you might like to do that this week if it's something that you'd like to think through. But for now, it's safe to say, isn't it, that in general, verse 2 is a very wise principle. Keep the king's commands. Keep the government's laws. There are so many benefits to doing that in so many ways. Again, just a starting point, go back to 1 Peter, and we see that that offers a witness to those around us as we live differently. And it also silences the talk of ignorant people, foolish people that uh, Peter writes about, who would speak against us without good reason. In some ways, though, that's an easy instruction, isn't it? If the king's command and the government's laws are good, we obey them. But how should we respond if that isn't the case? Well, again, we need wisdom. And that's what the preacher then offers up us in the next few verses, I think, as he tells us to wise up, not being foolish, but being wise in how we respond to a king who isn't doing what is right. In the preacher's day, if you look there at verse 3, a hasty exit, well, that was showing complete disrespect to the king. It's almost a straight usurping of his authority, rejection of him. Maybe we don't like what the king or the government is saying, but again, is that's a foolish response. Instead, we need to be wise. We still need to show honor and respect to people. It's the same as written in 1 Peter. We honor the emperor. We honor people as Christians. Again, isn't that such a radical way for us to live in this day and age? An attitude of honor and respect towards everyone. In some ways, in particular towards someone who seems to be governing in a way that isn't the best for the people. That's not what we see in the world around us. And the preacher then goes on, doesn't he, in the rest of verse 3 to give us another thing that we should avoid if we're going to be wise when we're faced with an unjust or harsh ruler. 
And that is avoid standing up to them in an evil cause. That is, essentially rebelling against them in an unrighteous manner. See, it can be tempting, can't it? Well, they've done evil, so I'll do evil back. But the preacher is saying to us this evening, wise up. Know that that is not the answer. It's not going to end up well for you, most likely. As we read there, the king does whatever he pleases. Probably you're going to even end up dead if that's how you respond. But even if you were to survive it, that just isn't how we should respond. That's not how he is calling the people then to respond. It's not how we should respond as Christians today either. Again, if you know the story of Daniel, he's a great example of this kind of wisdom, isn't he? Even as he recognized the king's authority and his power, like verse 4 of our passage is getting at, he doesn't speak evil against him. He doesn't go out of his way, but instead just continues to faithfully do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Eventually, even that does land him in the fiery furnace. But there, we're told that even though he disobeyed the king's edict, he did so in such a way that the king himself was distressed at the fact that he was having to throw Daniel into the lion's den, into the, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, sorry. And do you know what? The king even says he's wanting to set his mind to deliver him, if at all possible. Isn't that wise? Wise living. Now, we could say more about this wise response to authority and what that practically looks like for us this evening. But I think this is what the heart of the preacher is here. And I think that's the heart of the preacher is there at the end of verse 5. The second half of verse 5, if you look, up, look there with me, I think this sums up the general truth that the, author, that the preacher is trying to get us to think about. He sums up all of this, the specifics, by saying this. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. And this is what he's calling us to, to wise up, not be foolish in our actions, but navigate carefully, thoughtfully, whatever specific situation we find ourselves in, with wisdom, seeking the proper time and the just way to respond to it. See, his overall point from verses 1 to 5 is this. Wisdom is valuable. It makes a man and a woman's face shine. And it gives us strength to know what to do in difficult situations. So we need to ask for God's help, don't we? To be wise. Not being foolish as we live our lives, but being wise. This general principle, though is then added to, and in some way caveated, I think, by the preacher as he continues on in the rest of this passage. See, he's saying there in verse 5, we can be wise. We can have a wise heart. But he then goes on to outline in verse 6 and afterwards that we should also wise up in a different way. Wise up, being wise, knowing that we aren't God. And we can't be God. See, if you were with us last Sunday morning, we saw, didn't we, the limits of human wisdom. And this is what the preacher, I think, is again wanting us to see here. 
Notice the phrasing of verse 6. See if you can this reminds you of another section in Ecclesiastes, if you've been with us. For there is a time and a way for everything. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, right? As that chapter opens, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun, under heaven. From verse 5 of chapter 8, a wise person will know the proper time and the just way to act, maybe. But as the preacher now pushes us towards overall, our times and our ways in our lives are out of our control. If you were with us as we looked at chapter 3, we said, didn't we, that it pushes us to see that we aren't in control of our lives, but God is. And here the preacher is making a similar point. Describing this lack of control and certainty in our lives as a trouble, doesn't he there in verse 6? The preacher sees that frustratingly, many things in life just seem to be out of our control. And his first example of our lack of control is something he's, is there in verse 7. And that's the fact that we cannot control the future. As he says, we do not know what is to be, and who can tell us how it will be? We say to ourselves, don't we, if only I just knew what tomorrow will bring. If only I just knew for certain how my boss will react when I ask for that extra day off. If only I knew for certain whether taking that job will actually be better than my current job. If only I knew, if only I knew... But the point the preacher is making here is we can be wise, but the reality, as, as frustrating as it is, no amount of wisdom is going to give us a control or even a knowledge of our future. The preacher doesn't explicitly mention God in these verses here, but as I said, I think that, that reference there earlier is a clear reference back to chapter 3, and that keeps God in view. And so I think we're meant to stop and reflect on this. Being wise in our lives will actually mean recognizing our lack of control of our future. And in that way, it should push us back to a reliance on God. God who has everything under his control. Or as you think about your own life, is it actually true that deep down, you would rather be God You'd rather just know the future than trust God with the future. Or another way of thinking about this, as you look back on events in your life, do you say, well, if I'd been in charge, I would have done it differently? There's no way my car would have had that flat tire on the way to that interview. There's no way I would have been laid off from work. Or perhaps the other way around, positively, I would have already got that promotion that I was looking for. Or I would have already met the love of my life. Now, don't get me wrong. In many, many ways, I completely understand that feeling. And that is what the preacher is feeling too. See, he keeps reflecting on life, doesn't he? And he says the reality of life is that it is so often tough. And it does not go according to plan. It is full of vanity, enigma. 
It's full of pain and suffering. Last week we said it is seemingly to us crooked. Oppression, injustice, ultimately death. But just think what is going on in our hearts when we do say, well, do you know what? I would do things differently. Aren't we saying that we know better than God? Aren't we saying... I don't really trust you, God. I'm almost certain that what has happened to me can't have been for my good. Even if you promise in your word that it has been. Look with me to the concluding paragraph here from this section, verses 16 to 17, and see how the preacher frames everything that is going on in our lives. In fact, everything that is going on under heaven. He says... When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God. See there, that work of God is the same as all of that's going on on earth. And then he says this, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. This is the preacher's conclusion to his quest. First, that everything that is happening under the sun is actually the work of God. The work of God who is above the sun. And second, the second conclusion that we as humans under the sun cannot and will not ever find out and understand all of the ins and outs of God's work. Do you remember the scheme of things that we were thinking about last week? It is out of our grasp. See how he repeats that conclusion three times there, in case we miss it in verse 17. Man cannot find it out. Then later, he will not find it out. And then finally, he cannot find it out. It's a resounding conclusion, isn't it? And with that conclusion offered by the preacher in mind, we come back to verse 7 and our lack of control over the future. And we put that lack of control into this context. We are not in control of what will happen to us tomorrow or the day after, but God is. And we can be sure that God is doing his work in whatever will happen tomorrow or the day after. Sometimes the things that happen to us, well, we do. We are able to get a glimpse of, wow, God has worked that for his glory or for the good of his people. But often, along the lines of the preacher, things that happen to us will leave us scratching our heads. Perhaps even worse, weeping in desperation or confusion as we're faced with questions that we cannot ever answer fully on this side of glory. As the preacher says, we cannot find out all the work of God under the sun. But in saying that, we must remember that God is above the sun. He knows the whole picture. And crucially, as we see time and time again, we know that God is good. We read that, don't we, in the Bible throughout it. 
And his goodness means we can genuinely trust him with whatever is happening in our life now and whatever is happening in the future too. How do we know God is good? Well, through remembering God's dealings with his people. Much of which the preacher himself, I think, in making these kind of statements, is referring to, is making us look back at. God was faithful time and time again to the Israelites, wasn't he? Despite their unfaithfulness. But of course, we're even even more privileged position today than the preacher was back in Ecclesi- when he was writing Ecclesiastes. Because we've seen God's work now even more worked out in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, which offers us hope beyond this broken, seeming crooked world. I mean, who other than God could have imagined that, could have come up with that plan, could have worked that out? The Father sending his own Son to die in our place. Truly, as God says through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Of course, it's not just true that we don't control our future, is it? Because the preacher then also reminds us in verse 8 that we also can't even control the present. Look with me there to verse 8. He lists four things that we're not in control of right here and now, and he lists them together to make this point. First of all, we have no power over the wind. You'll see there, if yours has got a a footnote, that word for translated spirit is the same as wind, and I think that's what he's referring to here, because he often talks about wind, doesn't he? Chasing after the wind, and here it's the same. This sums up our lack of control in our lives. The wind blows, and what chance have we got to contain it? And then the second thing, when the day of death comes, what power do we have over that? None. And and as the preacher continues on, war comes. You're conscripted into the fighting. What power do you have there? Again, None. Unless death takes you, you will be in that fighting to the end. And then finally, well, don't think you can gain control of your life right now through your present actions. Because as the preacher writes there, even doing wicked deeds, well, eventually, one way or the other, you will be brought down. This is true for everyone, even for a wicked king. Someone who, as the preacher observes there in verse 9, who has power, seemingly, over others to hurt them. Yet even their seemingly powerful word, it's written there, the same word, power, in verse 4. Well, that powerful word ultimately has no power or control at all, apart from God being at work as well. No power over the events of their lives. The wind will still blow in the direction that it wants. And there is no power, even over death, even for the most powerful king. And if that is true for a king, how much more true is it of us? 
And so the preacher wants us to respond this evening by wising up, taking on board all that he said and realizing that we are not in control even of our present. We can be wise, but being part of being wise is recognizing that we cannot be God. God is the only one in control. As the preacher concluded, right, in verses 16 to 17, it is all God's work. And so we are called to turn to him and trust him, even with the uncertainties, the painful things, the enigmas of our life. And it's one of life's greatest enigmas, isn't it, that the preacher then turns to in verses 10 to 14. And in seeing this enigma laid before us, we see the third thing that, pre- that the preacher would have us see that we can't control, and that is final justice. Look with me at verse 10. There the preacher says he observes this enigma, this vanity of a seeming lack of justice. He sees, doesn't he? He looks out and he sees the funerals of wicked people. Perhaps people maybe he's known personally in his life. And he sees that these wicked people in their lifetimes actually often went in and out of the holy place, probably the temple in Jerusalem. And all of these people were genuinely admired. They were praised in the very same city where they did their wicked deeds, their evil acts. And to the preacher, this is crazy. This is completely absurd. And I think that's what he's getting at there with that conclusion, that this also is vanity. This is seemingly an absurd injustice, an enigma. Life just shouldn't be like this. And yet it is. It's what he observes. In fact, it seems like wickedness for the preacher goes unpunished so often, as he says in verse 11, that people go deeper and deeper into their wickedness because they think that they won't ever have to pay the price for it. That justice just simply won't ever come face to face with them. This same kind of lack of justice is seen then if you look over at verse 14 too, the other side of this kind of sandwich that the preacher is using. And here he laments in some ways the enigma, the vanity that righteous people often still seem to suffer in the here and now as if they were wicked. And wicked people, well, they seem to be rewarded in the here and now as if they were living righteous lives. And again, this is completely wrong for the preacher. And I think we would all agree, right, deep down, this just doesn't seem to be right. So what are we meant to do with this reality? This reality that we don't seem to be able to bring about final justice. Well, I think we're once again meant to wise up and remember that we aren't God. We aren't in control of final justice. Look with me to what the preacher says in verses 12 and 13. And notice the shift that goes on here. He goes from seeing, doesn't he, to something that he just knows to be true. He writes, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not 
fear before God. Back in chapter 3, verse 17, the preacher said to himself, God will bring judgment on both the righteous and the wicked. And here he's saying similarly, isn't he? But here, even more clearly than before, we seem to be getting a hint that this judgment that the preacher is talking about is a judgment that will take place in the future, a judgment that will take place after death, some kind of final justice of God beyond the grave. And we see this for two reasons, I think. First of all, because of what the preacher observes either side, right? In verses 10 to 11 and verse 14, there he's lamenting precisely the fact that there isn't justice here and now. And so even as he doesn't know all of the details, the preacher seems to just know that the wicked's flourishing in the here and now. Well, that just cannot, simply cannot be the end of the matter. And then we also see within these verses, I think, a hint at this too. See there the repeated mentioning of prolonging life. And the point there, I think, is that whether life is prolonged or not isn't at the end of the day the big deal. Ultimately, no one's life can be prolonged forever. Even the wicked's life, well, they will eventually die. Death is the destiny of us all, as we said last week, whether we are wicked or righteous. So what matters most is whether it will be well when we die. Will it be well for you and for me when we die? See there what the preacher says in verse 12, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. It will be well, it will not be well. Two quite generic statements in some ways, aren't they? But actually contained within them is deep, deep truth that we need to hear again this evening. It will be well for those who fear God. It will not be well for the wicked. Now, the preacher at this point of writing doesn't seem to have a fully orbed, worked out idea of life beyond death. It doesn't seem like people at that point did. But he is still sure that there must be some kind of justice, isn't he? And of course, now, as we look back on the preacher's words, we can see them even more shining out in truth. In light of Jesus' coming, in light of Jesus' teaching. Listen to the similarities to the preacher's words and Jesus' words in John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says this, A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, that is, Jesus' voice, and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Likewise, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus talks about the separating out of those who did what was good and those who didn't, saying that those who didn't feed the hungry or clothe the needy, well, they will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the future reality for us all that the preacher and the Bible present to us this evening. 
that even though we may not see justice being served here as we would like, there is a final and ultimate justice to come, a final day of judgment that will be brought about, which we aren't in control of, but which God is, and we can trust him with. And on that day, the two outcomes of that justice, that judgment, couldn't be much better summed up than the words of the preacher here, could they? Either it will be well, or it will not be well. Given this truth, and these truths that we've been seeing more generally this evening, as we conclude, I think the preacher then leaves us with two clear applications for us to take with us into this week and beyond. Firstly, that we should be wise and fear God. Fear God for two reasons, I think, from what we've just seen. Firstly, because as we've seen tonight, he is someone who should be feared. This is a God who is in control of everything, and we are not. When you realize that someone has complete power over you, over the outcome of everything that you do, ultimately power over the day of your death, isn't it right that in some ways we do respond in fear? That person holds your life in their hands. Well, that is true of God. But of course, as we say this, we once again say that this is a right fear of God. It's not a quaking in our boots before God, because God is not the evil tyrant or the unpredictable king who we was talked about at the start. God is good. He has shown that time and time again. He is slow to anger and bounding in love. He is faithful to us even when we are faithless. And he has incredibly made a way for us to come to him through his death of his own son. And see, that's the second incredible reason why we should fear God. Because if we do, then ultimately it will be well with us. Isn't that incredible? We, we should not be fooled like those in verse 11. Wickedness and evil will one day be judged. But if we are fearing God, running to him today in reverence and humility, clinging to the cross of Christ, we can know for certain that he has already paid the price for our own wickedness, for our own evil deeds. This is the incredible news of the gospel, isn't it? straight from the preacher's mouth here in Ecclesiastes. Even if he didn't know all the ins and outs, he says this, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. And of course, then, the second application for us to take away is given to us precisely there in verse 15. To be wise and seek after and find joy. He writes there, verse 15, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. Even as life there is filled with toil, filled with enigmas, filled with difficulties, as the preacher has made clear right the way through this book, we can find joy. 
Of course, if we're those fearing gods tonight, the preacher has just given us a great first reason, hasn't he, to find joy. Because we can know that one day, everything will be 100% well. And we find that same call to joy and hope all the way through the Bible, don't we? But I don't think that's necessarily the primary thing that the preacher is thinking about here. I think given the context of this passage, the driving reason for joy, as we see here, is instead the fact that as we wise up, as we realize that we aren't God, we can't be God, there is actually great freedom and liberation and joy in that. In reality, if we spend all of our lives desperately trying to control our future, trying to control the present, worrying about the seeming lack of justice that there is in the world around us, it is very unlikely that we will ever stop long enough to find joy in the here and now, to find joy in the good gifts that God gives us, that the preacher comes back to again and again and again in this book. Yes, we will be concerned about things in this world, about what will happen, about justice being done. But when we realize that ultimately we are not in control of those things, but instead our good God is in control of those things, we can in some ways hand those things over to our God and learn to increasingly find joy in what God has given us in the here and now. We don't need to carry the burden of knowing it all. Isn't that good news? We don't need to have all of the answers. Isn't that good news? God is in control, and we can trust him. So as we close, I want to leave us with a question for us to take into this week. Yes, life is almost certainly, in one way or another, going to plan you. If you'd planned it out, this would not be, there is something that would not be happening or would be different in your life. In fact, for some of you, there is something substantial that you are going through right now, I'm sure. But will you hear the call of the preacher this week and submit those things to God, trusting him with them? Will you hand over your questions, your complaints, your grumbling to God? Will you recognize that he is in control and he is good, even if we cannot find out the exact ins and outs of how he is working out things for your good and for his glory? Will you have faith that God is good, someone to be trusted even amongst your difficulties in life? And in doing that, will you choose to find joy in what God gives you in the days and weeks to come? Let's pray as we close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word to us. Lord, thank you that the preacher went on this quest. And Lord, thank you for how he brings us back to wisdom. Wisdom that we should seek after, that will help us to live well in the here and now. Wisdom to navigate specifics like submitting to authority. But also that wisdom that says we are not God. You are. 
Lord, would you plant that truth deep within our hearts? And Lord, would you make that truth, sometimes as hard as it is for us to know that and to to realize that and to love that, please would it bear fruit in us this week? Please would you help us to rightly seek after justice here and now, to rightly do all that we can to be wise. Lord, but please also would you help us to hand over things in our life Lord, as the preacher reflects, things that just make us frustrated, that bother us. Lord, please, will you help us to hold those things more and more loosely, placing them into your hands. Lord, laying them before you and trusting you with them. And Lord, as a result of that, please would you give us joy. Lord, thank you for that incredible truth that we have seen this evening, that if we are fearing you, There is a glorious future that awaits us when all will be well. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, Lord. All will be well. Help us to find joy and hope in that, in whatever this week holds. And Lord, even in the little things that you will give us, the good things this week, would you then also grant us the power to enjoy those, we pray as well. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to close uh, by singing this uh, song, By Faith We See the Hand of God. And it's a great picture, isn't it? The hand of God, the work of God. And we can have faith in him. We can trust him because he is truly at work. So let's stand and respond in our final song, By Faith We See the Hand of God.
we close. Lord, may this be true of us this week. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. Lord, this week, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for joining us uh, this evening. Do stick around. There'll be some tea and coffee served in just a moment at the back there. Do carry on your conversations and have a good rest of your evening.